This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on AM 740 Zoomer Radio. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by Chartwell Seniors Housing, making people's lives better. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. It was a hundred years ago this weekend that the Titanic hit an iceberg on its maiden voyage and sank to the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. I'll talk to Hugh Brewster, author of the new book, RMS Titanic, that details the lives of the charismatic cast of characters on board. And we'll also hear some of the music that the band famously played as the ship went down. And there was troubling news earlier this week. According to the World Health Organization and Alzheimer's Disease International, the number of dementia cases will explode over the next few decades. I'll talk with our own Dale Goldhawk, host of Goldhawk Fights Back on the new AM740 and a member of the board of Alzheimer's Disease International. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. The week began with thousands of Canadian students joining the Governor-General and the Minister of Veterans Affairs in France to mark the 95th anniversary of the Battle of Vimy Ridge. The students marched from Givenchy to the site of Vimy Ridge, mirroring the march soldiers performed as they headed into battle early on the morning of April 9, 1917. The battle marked the first time that all four divisions of the Canadian Corps fought side by side. About 150,000 French and British soldiers had already died trying to take back the ridge. By the fourth day, April 12th, Canadians controlled the entire ridge at a cost of almost 3,600 lives. Thousands more were wounded in the battle, which was hailed as the first Allied success of the long war. A Zoomer banker is blasting Wall Street in what a leading U.S. investor website is called the must-read missive of the season. In his annual letter to shareholders, 77-year-old Robert Wilmers, CEO of Buffalo's M&T Bank Corp., says his country's largest banks and brokers have destroyed a century of public trust in the industry and led people to question bankers' integrity and civic leadership. He says their wrongdoing has dragged the rest of the industry down, and he laments that he has never seen banking held in such low esteem. How often do you get dental x-rays? Well, consider limiting your exposure. A new study suggests a link between dental x-rays and brain tumors. It found that people diagnosed with meningioma, the most common type of brain tumor, had more frequent dental x-rays than those who did not. The study's author says that while the results are troubling, the risk is relatively small and that x-rays have an important role in maintaining dental health. The results are published in the journal Cancer. 
And finally, it's tax time. And if you recently started collecting old age security and CPP benefits, you could be in for a surprise. You should know that tax is not withheld from those benefits unless you specifically request it. And if you haven't, you'll have to come up with a full year's taxes on that kind of income. If you've been topping up a tax-free savings account, remember, these do not result in a tax deduction like RSP contributions. And lastly, new this year, Ontario residents are no longer receiving the Ontario Energy and Property Tax Credit, Sales Tax Credit, or Northern Residence Credits as part of their tax refund. These credits will be combined in the new Ontario Trillium Benefit and paid in monthly installments starting in July 2012. Those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. I'm Libby Snymer, and you're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review. Is there anyone there? Yes, what you see. Iceberg, right ahead! Thank you. Iceberg, right ahead! On the starboard, starboard! That's a clip from James Cameron's 1997 blockbuster film, Titanic. For a century, the public appetite for details of the disaster has been unsinkable, and it reached a crescendo in the lead-up to the 100th anniversary. The great ship went down 100 years ago today on April 15, 1912, one day after it hit an iceberg. I sat down with Titanic historian Hugh Brewster, who's just come out with a new book, RMS Titanic, Gilded Lives on a Fatal Voyage. Hugh Brewster, thanks so much for joining us. Pleasure, Livy. When Canadians think of the Canadian piece of that tragedy, Mm -hmm. they think of the death ships that uh, took the bodies to Halifax after the sinking. This throws a whole different light on it. Yeah, I mean, I wanted to to write about the people, first and foremost, and not just the Canadians. I mean, the book is been published around the world. But, of course, the Canadians are often overlooked in other Titanic books. So I did want to feature some of the most interesting ones. And, of course, one of the most famous passengers on board, most people didn't even realize, was Canadian. And that was uh, Lucille Lady Duff Gordon, who was perhaps the most elegant woman in the world. I I mean, she was the uh, leading uh, couturier and the only major female fashion designer in the world. Um, she had salons in London, New York, and Paris. And um, she was going to New York on the Titanic uh, because she needed larger premises for her salon. She's the woman who invented the fashion show, uh, coined the word chic for a stylish, and made it respectable for nice women to wear naughty underwear. Naughty underwear. Mm-hmm. Tell us a, a bit more about her. How did she come to be that after growing up in Guelph, Ontario? Well, that's the thing. Um, She grew up in this backwoods town. Her mother was widowed. She was actually born in England, um, but had to go back to Guelph when her father died because that's where her mother was from, and they lived in this big farmhouse. The mother was desperate to get out of Guelph, so she married a cranky, old, wealthy man from a nearby farm, and he took them back to England, and uh, they lived on the island of Jersey because the living there was cheap. Then she... um, Married an older man, made a very bad marriage, and he ran off with someone and she divorced him, which was a hugely scandalous thing to do. So she found herself penniless and a divorcee. So she thought, well, what can I do? Uh, There wasn't much that respectable women could do. So she said, well, I can sew because in Guelph, you know, you had to make your own clothes in the 1860s. So she uh, became, you know, a clothing designer and became a huge success. 
What happened to Lucille on the Titanic? Well, it's one of the most famous uh, stories and one of the most sensational stories, of course. Sensation just seemed to follow Lucille. She and her husband, Sir Cosmo, got into a lifeboat with only 12 people in it when it could have held 45. When this got into the newspapers that the Lord and Lady had had their own private boat and hadn't rowed back to pick anybody up, uh, and then Sir Cosmo compounded it by giving each of the crewmen in the boat a promissory note for five pounds, you know, a bit of noblesse oblige. This got into the newspapers as uh, that he had bribed these men to keep quiet about not going back to pick up any of the drowning. So it it almost ignited. I mean, I don't think it's exaggerated to say. In England, you know, it, it, it upset people hugely because class antagonisms were running very high after the Titanic with, you know, so many of the steerage passengers having died. So Lady Duff Gordon describes arriving back in England and every newspaper kiosk had a poster, read about the Titanic coward, Lord and Lady row away from drowning on Titanic. It became a huge story. Now, the Lord, I mean, there were not many male passengers who were allowed on those lifeboats. Well, there were some. And if you were on the right side early on in the night, uh, they couldn't get people to go because people didn't think the ship was sinking. So on the starboard side, um, First Officer Murdoch was encouraging men to go just because the women wouldn't go without their husbands. But the boats were still leaving half full. On the uh, port side, uh, the officers there were much more strict about making it women and children only. Who are some of the other exciting Canadians? Well, one of my favorites is a man named Arthur Puchin. Major Arthur Puchin. He was a major in the um, Queen's Own Rifles. He was uh, a very wealthy man in his own right. He had a big house at the top end of Jarvis Street. He um, was helping load the boats on the uh, uh, port side. And um, they lowered one boat, and the man called up and said, I need somebody else to help with the oars. They called out for a crewman. There was none around. Puchin said, I'm a yachtsman. Can I be of service? So he swung out in the night over the 60-foot drop, you know, wearing a big bulky coat and, and life preserver. And he was 53 years old and shinnied down 25 feet into this swaying boat. Quite a bit of Errol Flynn daring do, I would say. And yet uh, he lived in Toronto society under a cloud for the rest of his life because it was thought unmanly to have survived the Titanic. And his, his nephew, uh, who wrote a family memoir, said that people always said, oh, yes, your uncle, the man who dressed in women's clothes to get off the Titanic. When the Titanic went down, do you think that uh, a whole way of life sort of went down with it? Well, it's nice to think that. I mean, this is always in retrospect, you know, was this yeah. the end of the Gilded Age? World War I began uh, two years later. And of course, income tax was introduced in 1913. So that was certainly a game changer. And, and the Titanic, in retrospect, is seen as, you know, a symbol of a complacent society steaming towards disaster. And, uh, and in the book, I quote a poet, Blanche Ulrich, who said, you know, the Titanic was like as if some stage manager had arranged a minor flash of horror, you know, before the greater calamity to come. It was always growing up, you know, there was the famous poem and yes, the songs. The songs yes. uh, but it was always seen as an example of hubris and yes. it went down because of hubris because it, it dubbed itself or it was dubbed the, the unsinkable ship. Sure. And we still use it. I think it's our most cited metaphor for hubris and, and human arrogance uh, and folly. 
RMS Titanic is published by HarperCollins, and you will be back later in the show with some of the music played on board on that fateful night. I'm Libby Snymer, and you're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review. Today, there's a new case of Alzheimer's disease or some related dementia diagnosed in the world every four seconds. That's Dale Goldhawk of Goldhawk Fights Back talking about a sobering report on the exponential increase in dementia that is expected worldwide. In just a moment, he'll tell me what Canada must do to cope with the crisis. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by Chartwell Seniors Housing, making people's lives better. Welcome back to the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. This week we had a huge wake-up call about dementia and the danger it poses to our society. There was a new report, a joint report from the World Health Organization and Alzheimer's Disease International, which predicted that the number of dementia cases around the world will triple by the year 2050. And with me, I have our own Dale Goldhawk of Goldhawk Fights Back. He's also a member of the board of directors of Alzheimer's Disease International. Welcome, Dale. Thanks. Uh, thanks very much, Libby. I appreciate the opportunity to talk about this. Well, you were involved in writing this report. Well, uh, ADI had great input with uh, the World uh, Health Organization in putting all, all this together. And that's another story I'll tell you about in a second. But the report is absolutely alarming. You're absolutely right. It means Martin Prince, who's one of the foremost uh, researchers on Alzheimer's disease and related dementias in London, is now predicting that today there's a new case of Alzheimer's disease or, or, or some related dementia diagnosed in the world every four seconds. Wow. Every four seconds. Amazing. And so many countries are doing literally nothing about it to get prepared for the cost alone. Martin Prince and others also estimate that the cost of caring for those with dementia is about $600 billion. Wow. So if you triple that in, in the next few years, that's like a trillion and a half dollars that would have to be spent to treat the poor people who will be suffering from these dementias. And the other thing, according to this report, is that only eight out of 194 member countries have a plan, and Canada is one of the countries without a plan. We're without a plan, and it's not for lack of trying, may I say. Uh, we're hoping that this particular report on top of a report that the Canadian Alzheimer Society already submitted to the government a couple of years ago. Rising w- tide. Rising tide. Kind, the, the title kind, kind of tells what it's about. It is a rising tide. And why has be- there been no action? I, I, I don't know. I guess they're just not putting the priority on dementias. Uh, they're not making it uh, uh, as important Uh, an issue as it should be. But, you know, that's the way it was in the world a few years ago. Alzheimer's Disease International, that represents 78 countries in the world, went to the World Health Organization and said, in your efforts, in your studies, you must include dementia. They hadn't before. uh, They hadn't included it under their non-communicable diseases portfolio, where they advise the world about health issues. Now they have. Even the World Health Organization has recognized the incredible importance of this danger. And yet, when you get right down to it, not enough people are doing enough to get prepared. Okay. Well, so the question is, 
What do we do to get prepared? Some of the countries that do have a plan include France, Australia, Japan. Dale, have you had a look at any of these plans? Oh, yes. What does it consist of? Well, it's money in the first instance. It's money for research. Uh, Research is going on every single day in some part of the world. But still, well, including the answer, here, we inc- oh, I'm not saying there's not yeah. research going on here. More research is what we need. We need the federal government to more directly fund research uh, right here in Canada. We need the federal government to um, uh, in, be involved in better health delivery for those with dementia. We need the federal government to offer some special help for caregivers oh, who yes. go through absolute hell in a loving I, I mean they love their spouses and they love the people who are part of their family but my god looking after them is an absolutely relentless relentless oh, I, job. I, I couldn't even imagine and you know what so it happened you boil that down to Ontario where the the community care access centers hand out uh, certain hours to people trying to live at home and I had a call just on the radio a couple of days ago uh, from a woman who said, yeah, I get help from the CCAC. I get two hours a week. I have to look after my mm-hmm. husband 24 hours a day, and I get two hours a week to scurry around and buy food and maybe take a breather. Two hours a week. How is she even going to take a breather with two well, hours you, a week? Well, you can't. There's no respite, you know. For And that's just one of the issues that is only going to make the health bill larger than it is right now. So we're hoping that this report from the World Health Organization, from ADI, from the Alzheimer Society of Canada, all of this will eventually compel the federal government to spend a few million dollars. David Cameron in the UK just announced 45 million pounds to be given over to, uh, to Alzheimer research on top of what's already being spent. Nicholas Sarkozy has made it an absolute priority for his government to fight dementia and is backing it up with a lot of euros on top of that. We have some of the best Alzheimer's researchers in the world. Canada leads the world in terms of our background knowledge of the disease from so many people at Baycrest, from people like Dr. Serge Gauthier from uh, Montreal. A lot of incredibly important research has been done by these people. So it's not that we don't have the talent. We don't have the bucks. Okay. On that note, Dale Goldhawk will wrap it up. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks very much, Libby. You can catch Dale Goldhawk weekdays at 11 a.m. right here on the new AM740 on Goldhawk Fights Back. I'm Libby Zneimer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Earlier in the show, author Hugh Brewster told us about some of the famous Canadian passengers on the Titanic. In just a moment, he'll be back to talk about some other very interesting people on board, the musicians who famously went down with the ship. We'll hear a selection of what is thought to be the last songs they performed on deck. Stay tuned. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by Chartwell Seniors Housing, making people's lives better. Welcome back to the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. One aspect of the Titanic legend that fascinates nearly everyone is the group of musicians that went down with the ship. After it struck the iceberg, the eight musicians set up in the first-class lounge and played light music in an effort to calm everyone down. Then they headed out to the deck and continued to perform popular ragtime tunes and hymns long into the night to help keep the frantic passengers calm 
as they loaded the lifeboats. Since so few people were there until the very end and survived to tell about it, it's hard to determine what the final song was, but here is Hugh Brewster with his take on what happened. What's generally claimed to be the last song, the radio operator who jumped onto the roof of the officers' quarters as the ship was literally going down said the last song he heard was a song called Autumn. And this was a big puzzle for a long time because people thought Autumn might be a hymn tune. But then Walter Lord, actually we discussed it, uh, said people don't identify hymn tunes by their generic name. They use the first line, like Nearer My God, rather than whatever the hymn tune is. So that makes no sense. And then I said, well, look, I've got a copy of the White Star booklet that the musicians used. And there was a, a song in there called Songe d'Autumne. And it was apparently, by Archibald Joyce, apparently known as Autumn. So that may, in fact, have been the very last tune that was played. was Song Dotan. Was it the last song performed by the eight musicians who went down with the Titanic? That's one of the many mysteries that will never be known for sure. I'm Libby Snymer. That brings us to the end of another edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. Thanks for joining me today. I hope you'll be back next Sunday at noon when I'll talk to Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent, a practicing neurosurgeon, and now also a novelist. This has been an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on AM740 Zoomer Radio. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.